0: Good morning, and welcome to Rising. We have a great show for you today. Kim
1: is joining me from LA, bright and early, while Robbie yep. is out sick. Yes, how, we how hope he doing feels Ken? better. <laughs> I well, I'm 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 doing well. It's early, but it, you know I, I'm hoping Robbie feels better soon. Um, I'm very happy to be here. But we do have a packed show for you today. We'll get into the latest on what's happening with the Uvalde police investigation, as well as gun reform legislation, with our panel. Plus. We'll discuss Biden's new weapons package to Ukraine and the NIH's branch into monkeypox research back in 2021. But first, Biden aimed to get a hold of inflation yesterday during a meeting with the Fed at the White House. Let's watch.
2: I'm meeting with the Chairman today and Secretary Yellen uh, to discuss my top priority, and that is addressing inflation and, uh, and the, in order to transition from historic recovery. <clears throat> to a steady growth that works for American families.
0: This comes as the president released an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal detailing his plan to tackle high prices. The second sentence of the op-ed blames Putin, despite inflation starting long before the war in Ukraine. Biden's plan includes a release from the global oil reserves, lean energy tax credits, reducing the deficit, and more. And while there's no real plan of action, Biden announced he would take his hands off the wheel and let the Fed handle the economy.
2: My plan is to address inflation. It starts with a simple proposition. Respect the Fed. Respect the Fed's independence, which I have done and will continue to do. My job as President is not to uh, nominate highly — not only nominate highly qualified individuals for that institution, but to give them the space they need to do their job. I'm not going to interfere with their critically important work. The Fed has dual responsibilities. One, full employment. Two, stable prices. Chair Powell and other leaders of the Fed have noted at this moment they have a laser focus on addressing inflation, just like I am.
1: However, the Fed indicated this week that more interest rate increases are coming this year, putting strain on consumers in an effort to tackle inflation, a move that could put voters at odds with the administration come midterms. The Hill's finance reporter, Sylvan Lane, joins us to discuss. Sylvan, thank you so much for joining us so let's first talk about Biden's three-point plan that he laid out in the Washington, uh, it was the Wall Street Journal op-ed. Kind of give us, can you give us some more details as what, what does Biden think he's gonna do to curb inflation?
3: Sure, so the first and you know the most important part for Biden of his plan is to let the Fed go ahead with its planned interest rate hikes without any pressure or any pushback from the White House. Now, this is something Biden is trying to do to, to distinguish himself from previous presidents who privately pushed against the Fed when the Fed was planning on raising interest rates to curb inflation. Uh, you know We have a long history of presidents doing that, most recently former President Trump. But what Biden is trying to be seen as saying is the Fed is going to have to hike interest rates. I know that it might be a little bit painful, but we have to do it for the economy. The rest of his plan are things that he's been proposing in some way, shape or form since he's been running for president. Uh, you know, focusing on some of the energy industry issues of this uh, situation. But for him, the main thing is saying, I'm going to let the Fed hike interest rates. I know it's going to be tough, but it has to happen to bring inflation down.
0: I mean, it's an interesting political posture to kind of presume that you can distinguish yourself, presumably in a good way, from past presidents. But it's not clear to me that that is something that that's front of mind for the average American, that the average American kind of really realizes that Presidents lean on the Federal Reserve in that way. Uh, You know, does that seem like a, a political maneuver that is likely to endear him to the public?
3: You know, honestly, this is gonna come down to whether or not inflation is noticeably lower by the time voters head to the polls in November. President Biden is in a difficult position here because if the Fed goes too far in fighting inflation, it could cause a slowdown or a recession before the election. But if the Fed doesn't do enough to fight inflation, inflation is still going to be high by the time the Democrats have to really defend their majorities in the House and the Senate. And that is going to be an untenable situation as well. For Biden, the goal seems to be look like he's doing as much as he can to fight inflation with the hope that it does actually generate some noticeable results by the time the midterm elections come around.
1: They're going to have to do something for the working class people, because no matter how you slice it, whether they raise the interest rates or they choose to just allow inflation to continue running wild like it is, it hurts the working class people. It hurts middle class Americans. I mean, if they raise the interest rates, think about that. What is that going to do to the housing market uh, when they I mean, already it's a tight market. People are already being squeezed when it comes to high, higher rents and mortgages and the home prices going up. And then if you raise it basic a little more by saying now we're going to tack on some more to your payment because the interest rate's higher, Um, you know, all of that gets passed back down to the working middle class. It doesn't actually get absorbed by the wealthy. They just push it down the down to to the to everybody else. So I you know, this is a really, really tough situation. I don't. Are there any good solutions out there? Have you seen any good solutions in your reporting for how to get a hold of all of this?
3: No, unfortunately, there's no magic wand or one really easy tailored fix for this. Uh, Fed chairs and uh, economists talk all the time about how the Fed has pretty blunt tools. And that's mainly by raising and lowering its baseline interest rate range, which trickles out to interest rates throughout the economy. In other words, when the Fed raises interest rates, that means interest rates on credit cards, mortgages, auto loans, business loans, all of those are going up. And the goal of that is to slow the economy enough so that prices start to come down, but not too slow that it stops job growth and the economy from growing altogether. The real easiest or the most direct way that the government could directly affect middle class and working class households is through fiscal policy. And, you know, we saw that throughout the pandemic through the stimulus plans, the stimulus checks, the expanded uh, child tax credit all of the different uh, direct ways that congress and the president's tried to help people get through the pandemic but when it comes to fighting inflation these are trends that affect you know the entire us economy the global economy and a lot of these issues especially the supply chain issues are well beyond the fed and the uh, white house's control
0: so that's what's so confusing to me the choice to blame this on putin when economists i've spoken to have indicated that this is all a consequence of the coronavirus and the fact that there are these supply chain issues that have been caused by shutdowns across the world, most principally in China. And if that's the case, one, why blame it on Putin as opposed to these global factors that are also outside of Joe Biden's control? And then two, you know, why not be more honest about the fact that this isn't something that is so easily influenced by the Federal Reserve? Economists that I've spoken to in the past have been very frank about the fact that, as you say, they're blunt tools at their disposal and that there's a real kind of misunderstanding about how much control anybody has or how well any economist understands how they can affect inflation. You know, why isn't that part of the messaging? If one, Biden wants to kind of exculpate himself from blame here, and two, wants to give Americans a realistic idea of how things can change and when.
3: That's a great point. And, you know, a lot of the White House's early messaging about inflation, when it really started to pick up during the spring and summer last year, focused on the fact that, oh, you know, it's supply chain issues related to to the pandemic. They'll resolve quickly. Uh, By the end of the year, we should be fine. That's what the White House thought. That's what the Fed, for the most part, thought. And that's what many economists thought. So it's not just the White House or the Fed that got this wrong. Mm. The problem is when it became clear in the fall that inflation was rising higher and longer than many economists anticipated, and not only that, but started to go beyond goods that were directly affected by the supply chains and into services that really weren't affected that much by shutdowns, the White House was kind of slow to catch up to that. And we're really now starting to see the White House and the president really grapple with their own role in fighting inflation. We heard Secretary Yellen earlier in the year acknowledge that the administration misjudged how much inflation would go up and how long it would last. And kind of hinted that you know the stimulus bill, ha- which did help the recovery along in a lot of ways, uh, may have made that a little bit worse, too.
0: Well, I mean, so that's that's an ongoing conversation that people have been having, right? Some people have pointed out, again, economists that I've spoken to recently, that the people who are most affected by high inflation are actually the very wealthy. People um, who are debtors are actually marginally benefited by inflation, in the in to the extent that their debt gets smaller. That the value of their dollars today that can pay down their debt is, uh, you know, worth more, and so. There is this curious trade-off where the messaging is we can't give money to working people who are struggling in this crisis because it would grow inflation. At the same time, there is an unwillingness to tax and curb the um, wealth of the people who have benefited most, who have profited the most over the course of the COVID pandemic, with billionaires what adding, uh, you know, a, a third of, a, a third of the volume of their wealth to their wealth over the course of the economic crisis. Everybody else has been going through is there a, a lack of um, specificity going on here that doesn't disaggregate what kind of um, kind of cost uh, spending measures cost curbing measures spending curbing measures need to be implemented on working people versus the very rich?
3: You know this gets back to one of the key uh, issues with what when it comes to tr- the federal government trying to manage the economy effectively. There's this independence between the fiscal side of things. So the president and Congress and the Federal Reserve in terms of, you know, the president can't tell the Fed what to do. And the Fed and the White House and Congress can't really coordinate that much on the best ways to, you know, support the economy. So as the Fed is raising interest rates, it has, you know, like we were talking about before, it's kind of a blunt impact. It might be marginally helpful in some ways for paying down debt, but if you're a family that uh, has that is struggling to put food on the table, keep up with energy prices, rising interest rates are going to hurt. But inflation going higher is also going to hurt. And it also is a, a pretty severe problem for older folks who might be on fixed income, social security, or pensions, whose incomes are not really getting any bigger beyond the social security adjustment for inflation, but prices keep going up. So this is right. you know one of the most difficult problems that a country can deal with in terms of how you manage the pace of the economy in a way that's equitable for everyone. And because the Fed and the Congress are separated in a lot of ways for and for some good reasons, it can be hard to put together a big cohesive plan meant to address all of those different shortfalls.
1: Yeah, Just kind of take your pick, you know, with with who's going to eat The higher prices right now—it's the food has gone up, gas has gone up, and as you mentioned, you know, elderly people on fixed incomes—that is devastating for people in that category. Same thing with people who are very, very poor. You raise interest rates though, and that is going to impact other, other uh, price increases, right? So now you're going to have a higher credit card payment, or higher uh, student loan payment, or higher mortgages, maybe higher rents, depending on if your landlord passes that to you if they purchase the place or something along those lines or refinance. So it kind of—you're just choosing pick and choose who you want to pay more and for what i mean personally i get it i think it's way more important to make sure that older people on fixed incomes and poorer people can have access to food and can get the gas in their cars to go where they need to go if i have to pick and choose if i have to pay higher interest rates on my student loans or on my credit cards i can do it i've got a job so i I mean i guess that's what we have to do but it's not it's not like this easy fix of oh everybody's going to be happy it sounds like we, we have to pick and choose who's going to be miserable
3: yeah, I mean, it's definitely a, a, a tough situation for everybody. But the the key thing that many economists, you know, the Fed Chair Powell, economists across the board say is that if you don't get inflation under control, everybody is going to get hurt one way or another. We, you know, all, the country saw this in the late 70s and early 80s. We had decades of presidents who pushed the Fed to, against raising interest rates. A uh, few Fed chairmen who largely obliged to that. And by the time we got to the late 70s, growth was stalling, inflation was spiraling out of control, and the way the Fed approached fixing that was in the early 80s, inducing this miserable recession. Now, the thing Fed Chair Powell talks a lot about is wanting to avoid having to do that again. So his argument, and the argument of many economists, Fed officials, folks who are concerned about this, is that we're gonna see pain now It's hard to figure out and know exactly where that's going to go and who's going to hit it hardest. But if we don't get inflation under control now, it's going to be impossible for the economy to get back to the point we saw before the pandemic, which was months and months of really strong job growth with inflation below 2%, which is around where the Fed likes to see it. And this was even with a large federal deficit. This was with a lot of other things that economists thought would make inflation go higher. Uh, but, you know, economists really want to try to get to that sweet spot we were in before the pandemic. And you can't really do that if inflation remains at 8.5, mm-hmm. 8.3% at an annual rate.
1: I don't yeah, think I, it's avoidable. We're yeah. heading for a recession. That's, yeah, I, the,
0: the, the, the point I was just trying to drive at was that there's a lot of discourse about how Biden, the administration, can't do things to help the poorest folks, like the kinds of supports that existed through COVID, because that is the cause of inflation. And it seems like there's a bit of a conflict of interest here in messaging. If inflation is really caused by these other factors, whether you believe it's Putin or the supply chain issues, then it seems like poor people who are taking the biggest hit are also that's also being used as an excuse for why they can't be supported. At the same time that it feels like most of what's driving. Um, The kind of uh, spending that you're trying to curb is from more wealthy people who do have more disposable income. And I'm just trying to tease out how legitimate the concern is that we can't have social supports that target the people who are most impacted um, by raising interest rates.
1: I don't know if dumping more money into the economy is going to be a good idea at this point. I mean, I think any sort of quantitative easing or or giving money to anybody, whether you're going to bail out banks or you're going to bail out people, you're dumping money into the economy. And that is problematic in in, in a situation that we're in right now with runaway inflation. They do need to figure out a way to do wealth distribution potentially. So like you mentioned, Brianna, maybe somehow redistributing the current money that's already in circulation. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's that's the
0: point, that we call it dumping money when we're talking about helping regular people pay for gas at the pump. We don't call it dumping money when we do the COVID relief that went to businesses that was the largest upward transfer in wealth in American history. And I think it's useful to disentangle that and to hear from economists about what real impact some of these marginal benefits for the working class who have only a small fraction of America's entire, uh, entire worth. Wealth by uh, in their bank accounts um, is going. What effect that's actually going to have as compared to some of these more wealthy spenders? So when we're and, you, know, you it,
3: it gets <laughs> to one of the you know key conflicts here too, because we know that there are households who are struggling with higher food prices and higher energy prices, higher rent prices, and that if they were to receive support from the federal government. That money would probably just go to things that they're already spending money on, and instead maybe they're not going into debt. Maybe they can afford to feed their family more you know, fulfilling and nutritious meals if they had a little bit more support. But the problem is, and we saw a little bit of this during the COVID pandemic too, is that the federal government doesn't have great tools for tailoring support to the people who need it most. And when it tries to do that, it often leaves a lot of folks out. So instead you get into these situations where folks who probably didn't need that much support were getting stimulus checks because you give them checks or you maybe miss folks who don't get it. And when the federal government you know it, it tries to get into that situation again, it could be tough. The other thing that I think is worth comparing to is that you know the difference between the economy at the outset of the COVID pandemic, and the economy right now. The economy at the outside of the COVID pandemic, uh, you know, it was the quickest and steepest decline in the American economy since the Great Depression. There was no denying that the federal government needed to step in in a huge way to support households and to support families. Fast forward to about 2 years later, inflation is really high, but the economy is quite strong by pretty much every other measure. The unemployment rate right now which isn't a perfect measure of the economy is 3.6 percent which is just one-tenth of a percentage point above where it was before the pandemic there are two open jobs for every unemployed person looking for a job in the country right now and even with high inflation consumer spending has been pretty resilient has continued to grow. But to a point you made earlier, Brianna, a lot of that has been driven by folks who were never hurt by the pandemic in the first place and are actually doing potentially better off. So the question for the government is, how could you do a fiscal support plan or how can you help the lower income households without flooding the economy with more money that will go to folks who don't really need it and will probably spend it on things that are already getting more expensive? And it's Mm -hmm. not an easy question to figure out, and there's no really easy, quick way to do it, which is why the president is looking toward the Fed to do most of the heavy lifting here and potentially take the blame if this doesn't go well.
1: Yeah. Yeah. All right, Sylvan, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Really great having you and hearing from you.
3: My pleasure, thanks for having me.
1: Coming up, um, no radar from me today, but Bree, looking forward to yours. That's coming up next. Bree, what's on your radar?
0: Can you legislate culture? Should you? These are questions that have been on my mind since 10 people were killed in a Buffalo supermarket two weeks ago by a self-described white supremacist and 19 children and two teachers were murdered last week in Uvalde, Texas. Since those two incidents, the country has been embroiled in deep, largely good faith conversations about how to prevent incidents like this from happening in the future. The depravity of these events, the repugnance of the Buffalo shooter's open hatred of black and Jewish people, the absolute cruelty of targeting elementary school children for an attack has fostered a real appetite for reform. The only question is, what to do? Historically, solutions have been split on a partisan basis. Conservatives, wary of infringements on Second Amendment rights, have been hesitant to adopt gun control measures which they see as part of a larger liberal agenda to make it next to impossible to own guns. Instead, they tend to emphasize mental health interventions, the insidious influence of violent video games, and call for increased funding for police, along with increased police presences in school. Sometimes they even call for teachers to be armed. Also, there's this. It was initially reported that he was a user.
4: In fact, he got angry that his grandmother and his mother didn't want him to use marijuana. But again, we don't know more. It was just mysteriously taken out of an article in the New York Times. But why aren't people in general not talking more about the pot, psychosis,
0: violent behavior uh, connection?
2: Well, that's a very good question, Laura.
0: Liberals see these policy interventions as insufficient at best and a bad faith distraction at worst. Because conservatives, ideologically committed to small government at all costs, rarely have ever proposed the types of mental health interventions that might actually prevent men and boys from becoming mass shooters, liberals tend to be somewhat dismissive of arguments about mental health as a primary cause. The same goes for violence in video games, which feels to liberals like an excuse to avoid the issue of guns, especially since decades of research have shown that while violent video games have a desensitizing effect on kids they do not cause the type of violence we've seen over the last two weeks or so. And after the colossal failure of first responders in Uvalde, even conservative voters are shooting down suggestions from Ted Cruz and other top NRA money recipients that the answer is more good guys with guns in school. Enough school resource officers have abandoned their posts during mass shootings for most folks to have abandoned the idea that they should put their children's lives in these people's hands. So, what do liberals have on offer? Well, liberals are inclined toward policies that make guns less accessible to those who are inclined to do violence against human beings. Some policies advocated by the left target specific types of guns that are frequently used in mass shootings, rationalizing that if a certain type of gun, like an AR-15, is attractive to mass shooters, for whatever reason, they should not be sold to civilians or at least they should be subject to a higher bar when it comes to background checks or waiting periods. To the extent that conservatives argue that other guns could be used instead or are equally dangerous, the liberal response is to say that those guns should be more difficult to attain too. Most liberals don't have an ideological opposition to gun ownership in principle, but when weighing the pros of gun ownership against the cons of mass shootings, suicides, and organized crime, liberals tend to believe restrictions on gun ownership are worth the cost. Conservatives obviously feel differently, and the tacit if rarely explicit message is that mass shootings might be the price to pay for freedom. Liberals point to other parts of the free world that don't suffer from America's unique gun violence problem and argue that America's policy priorities are in the wrong place. A world where children are massacred at school, no matter how infrequently, is not a free world, they say. In countries like Australia, which responded to a massacre in 1996 that left 35 dead with a stock buyback, prog- uh, a gun buyback program, uh, offer an important example in America should follow. Australia made a number of guns frequently used in illegal in shootings illegal, and then offered above market payments for folks to turn in those guns without penalty, even if they were illegal guns. This resulted in about 20% of privately owned Australian guns being turned in. 80% of guns remained in circulation, but mass shooting stopped. The efficacy of this approach, however, is rarely engaged with by conservative politicians and pundits. Instead, it's presumed that such a program would not work in the United States and that even 19 dead children aren't enough to make it worth just trying. Now, there seems to be some bipartisan consensus around red flag laws, which, which permit police or family members to petition a state court To order the temporary removal of firearms from a person who might present a danger to others or themselves. A judge makes the determination to issue the order based on statements and actions made by the gun owner in question. Red flag laws might be one of the few policies widely supported on a sort of bipartisan basis, though the NRA and conservatives like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Dan Crenshaw oppose them. And where they've been implemented, they've been successful. A Duke University study in 2016 concluded that Connecticut's red flag law averted around one suicide for every 10 to 20 gun seizure cases. Red flag laws were successfully adopted in Florida, signed by Republican Governor Rick Scott, after the Parkland shooting in 2018. And even since the shooting in Uvalde, several prospective shooters have been flagged following posts on their social media accounts, potentially averting more death. So I'm glad there is a growing consensus around red flag laws. But even Republican legislators who have supported them on the state level reject them on the federal level, leaving the majority of the country, including Texas, where the Ovalde shooting happened, vulnerable to the whims of politicians like Crenshaw. But I remain frustrated that common sense suggestions from both sides aren't getting more of an airing because of the presumed bad faith of the quote unquote other side. For example, age restrictions seem to be an obviously good idea if we want to prevent school shootings. According to a database project from the Washington Post, which tracks every act of gunfire at primary or secondary school during school hours since the Columbine Massacre in 1999, more than two-thirds were committed by shooters under 18. The average age for school shooters was 16. Even outside of school shootings, 26% of all mass shootings are perpetrated by men under the age of 25. The Uvalde shooter bought the gun he used to kill 19 children and two teachers legally a day after his 18th birthday. The Buffalo shooter, also 18, legally purchased his gun in New York. And unlike the Uvalde shooter, had no red flags that would have triggered the state's red flag laws. What could have stopped him, however, is preventing access to the gun in the first place. It's also worth mentioning that he used a high-capacity magazine that is illegal in New York State which only allows the purchase of magazines that shoot 10 rounds outside of a, a shooting competition. This underscores why it's so important to have federal gun legislation, because borders are porous. But Republican politicians so far seem to oppose it. Listen to this dodge by uh, Dan uh, Dan Hawthorne being interviewed outside of the Uvalde Middle School.
4: Congressman, let's get to a couple of other issues, because there's so many uh, potential solutions, and I want to yeah, hear sure. uh, other ones that you, you potentially agree with. One is, Raise the minimum age to purchase a firearm to Mm -hmm. 21 years old. The shooter in Evaldi, he was only 18. The Buffalo shooter was 18. Sandy Hook shooter was 20 years old. Parkland was 19 years old. Should you be 21 to buy a gun?
5: Well, I think the question we have to ask ourselves is, should 21 be the age that you're an adult? You know, as a society, we do have to decide when well, you're should technically it be? an adult. And right now, we, we, we technically say, 18. well, look, I'm not very impressed by our current swath of 18-year-olds and their maturity level. So maybe we should have that conversation. But then it has to apply broadly. It has to, it has to mean that you are not an adult until 21. And then, you know, what happens then? When we see a 22-year-old commit an atrocity, are we going to raise it again? And are we going to raise it again? And you know, at a certain point, we have to ask ourselves what our limiting principle is. Well- as far as that is well age limit. I mean the the, 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 truthfully, the vast brain, majority the NIH of these has said that the teenage brain by an older isn't
4: finished developing until mid 20s the the, the, the uh, there's medical studies that yep, show that the teenage true. brain just isn't fully developed so.
5: That's true and does that mean that we you know, I think it's 26 actually and so does that mean you're not an adult until 26 I mean I I think I was on my second deployment by then So you know, it's these are hard so, questions, um, and we're always, we're grasping for an answer because this questions. is an atrocity that Con, that really well, hits our hard.
4: Congressman, there, there, there. I mean, I, I, I think I'm guessing there are a lot of people out there watching this, hearing you saying no to a lot of the solutions that people are talking about. So, what I, I think people want to know is. What is the solution? What, what would you agree with? Because the way that right. the answers are coming out now, it's that nothing's going to change. And I don't think people here in this community and across the country want to hear that after their, their babies
0: are being massacred by these guns. That was Dan Crenshaw, of course. Now, raising the age of gun ownership does not require a comprehensive review of when a person becomes an adult, any more than requiring people to be 25 to rent a car does. And it's this kind of bad faith response that stands in the way of some common sense reforms. As for liberals, I'm frustrated by the extent to which mental health conversations are shut down without an airing. While I understand why mental health is seen as a right-wing pretext to avoid a substantive conversation about gun control measures, and how it can bring an undue stigma to people with mental health issues, the overwhelming majority of whom, of course, do not commit crimes, It's quite obviously true that there's something psychological, something perhaps cultural going on with American men. Almost 100% of mass shooters are men. And while women attempt suicide at a higher rate, men are more successful. The suicide rate among American men is on a deeply troubling upward trend. And it's the 12th leading cause of death in the United States. The correlation between the accessibility of guns and the rate of suicide is well documented. Some Republicans brag about high gun gun possession, low crime rate states like Wyoming, but those states feature some of the highest suicide rates in the country. And that's tragic. To the extent that there is a mental health problem in this country, it's exacerbated by the gun problem. And it's deeply frustrating to be caught in an either-or debate that does nothing to provide for the mental health crisis or the problem of guns getting into the hands of those who would cause harm. Finally, I'm frustrated that there's little appetite for folks to engage in the cultural problem that is adjacent to the mental health crisis. Liberals are right to call out video game panic as a paper tiger, but that doesn't mean that video games aren't a problem in some respects. Chat rooms within games have become core recruiting grounds for extremists. Teenage boys who feel lonely, left behind, and like they're losing power in society they feel entitled to, reclaim that power by participating in an edgelord culture where they engage in subversive speech, less because they have a strong ideology, at least at first, but because it feels good to feel superior in a world where they feel anything but. And extremists know they can offer young people a scapegoat for their social and economic problems. Immigrants, minorities, trans people, social justice warriors. As a leftist, it's painful to see because these kids are Somewhat right. The American social contract is not being honored. They've just got the culprit wrong. Wage theft, for example, is rampant in America. But while undocumented immigrants create some increased competition for low wage jobs, most wage theft is executed by corporations. In 2019 alone, the Department of Labor cited about 8,500 employers for taking about $287 million from workers. And the undocumented are actually huge victims of wage theft for obvious reasons, their legal status means they can't bring legal claims. Corporate media pundits funded by some of the most exploitative companies rarely focus on the real real wage thieves, choosing instead to scapegoat some of the lowest earners in the country who pay billions in taxes while unable to access the social programs those taxes fund. The worst offenders are corporations like Halliburton, G4S, Wackenhut, and Circle K stores, which have collectively taken more than $22 million from their employees since 2005. Walmart has been penalized with $1.4 billion in total wage theft settlements and fines. Banks and insurance companies are key offenders, with Bank of America paying $381 million in penalties. Wells Fargo, $205 million, and Morgan Chase, $160 million. Here's some testimony from one employee, Killian Collin, from a sanctioned firm. At Wells Fargo, she says, aggressive sales quotas based on exploiting vulnerable customers forced me into 12-hour shifts with no breaks and no food allowed and threats to withhold my paycheck if I didn't sign off on working extra hours for free. The retail sector has the highest aggregate penalties for wage theft, and that's in a sector that's been fighting minimum wage hikes that would keep up with inflation, fighting a minimum wage that hasn't gone up since 2009, the longest period in American history all while stealing from employees. Young men are right, it is bleak out there. But instead of being told who the real enemy is by honest actors in the Democratic and Republican parties, they're being propagandized by bigoted extremists. And the corporate parties are making it easy for extremist recruiters by lowering the quality of life for average Americans, enabling Wall Street, sending jobs overseas, and declining to tax the rich even as the rich steal more and more from workers. Meanwhile, conservatives are reluctant to take a good hard look at gun culture, which goes well beyond protecting our second amendment rights and instead pushes the idea that masculine value is bound up with violence. Now in February, Sandy Hook victims won an unprecedented settlement against gun manufacturer Remington, despite law shielding manufacturers from liability. Why did they win? Well, plaintiffs argue that the company was culpable because of the way they marketed their products to civilians as a way to kill their enemies. Not to kill deer, not burglars, but their human enemies. Family members of victims argue that ads like this, one which reads, consider your man card reissued, motivated Adam Lanza to kill 26 people. Daniel Defense, manufacturer of the AR-15 used in the 2018 Stoneman Douglas shooting, The 2017 Las Vegas slaughter of 58 people, the 2017 Sutherland Springs Church shooting in Texas that killed 26 people, the Pulse nightclub shooting, which left 49 dead, the 2015 San Bernardino shooting that left 14 dead in Sandy Hook, is coming under scrutiny for this advertising, which pushes the idea of gun ownership on younger and younger consumers. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Is it possible In the wake of the horrific tragedies this month, or just last month, to have an honest conversation about gun culture that's separate and apart from gun ownership. Can we disentangle a commitment to Second Amendment rights from a culture which glorifies military style weapons designed to kill humans and pushed on children? Can Americans on both sides of the ideological divide reckon with the fact that both corporate parties, both corporate parties, have created an environment so precarious with so little support for families, that young men see violent extremism as a viable alternative to a socially productive future? Can conservatives that believe mental health is a problem join with leftists who advocate for universal mental health care? Can conservatives that think parents aren't present enough in the home fight with leftists to secure them a living wage, so they can be home in time to help their kids with their homework, or even afford to survive on one salary so one parent can be home when their child gets home from school? And can liberals take seriously the threat posed not by video games themselves, but by the communication platforms they provide, and work harder to demonstrate a willingness to materially provide for all Americans, instead of relying on mere lip service to minority groups for votes? followed up by, of course, inaction and excuse making. Can this be a moment for a little good faith? I'm not sure, but here's hoping. So Kim, I was really struck by what I saw outside of the kind of the mainstream media sphere, people engaging with this issue across the aisle in a way that was heartening. But there still seems to be so much, I think, scarring from years of bad faith fighting that a lot of good solutions that are being bandied about, which are partially true and would partially help, aren't being fully considered by either side.
1: Well, that might change through time, I'm hoping. I'm hoping that as, you know, we're we're seeing a cultural shift happen, I think, um, on the left and the right in the political parties. We're seeing that things are starting to morph and there's kind of this new realignment sort of happening. And in that new realignment that's happening, this new sort of political shift that's happening on the right and the left, people on, for example, on the right, you know, will, will say, hey, I, I'm not so sure about these cops. You know, whereas previously they would always be, oh no, there's no such thing as a bad cop. You know, we've mentioned that before in the show. Um, and now maybe they're starting to second guess that sort of sentiment and on the left, you know, we're starting to see some other sentiments even change even after George Floyd. We're st- we're seeing, you know, like after January 6th, some people on the left say, no, oh, no, I want more. You know, I, OK, maybe not all cops are so bad. Right. So we're starting to see this sort of almost meeting in the middle in a, in a way because people are starting to see that. It's never just black and white. It's, it's, there's a lot of gray when it comes to everything. So there might be an opportunity as those shifts continue to happen where people start to say, actually, we agree. There are things we do actually agree on. So I'm hoping that even though we feel like, even though there's a lot of division in the country right now, we're in a very hyper-politicized environment. I'm hoping that because of this kind of shifting and thinking that is happening on both sides of the aisle, there is sometimes this meeting in the middle a bit. And there's this agreement but i think you hit a lot of a lot of really good points throughout your radar of this is a multi-pronged problem that has a lot of different elements to it it isn't just one thing that can be done in or in order to solve the crisis but i think as more and more people for example say what you're saying on the left if more and more say hey it's not just the guns there's a lot of other things that are going into this You're going to find those people then on the right that say you know what Brianna I agree with you Hmm. and then suddenly you're in that conversation.
0: Yeah I think a really key thing and I've been working on this myself is that when someone who is maybe ideologically opposed to you proposes a solution even if there are reasons for you to think it's like a bad faith offer you gotta just accept it in good faith and ask the kind of follow-ups you would ask if you were engaging with someone you thought was really were acting in good faith Because if you don't, you never get to the bottom of whether or not there's a there there. And you basically allow someone to get away with an argument by not interrogating it further. So if someone says, okay, I think the answer is mental health, so many liberals will say, that's just a pretext, I'm not gonna engage with you. But if you were to say, okay, so what's your policy prescription for how to deal with this mental health crisis? Either they have one, and great, we can move forward with something that might be productive, Or they don't because they don't actually think it's a mental health issue. They just don't want to talk about gun regulation. And then something has been revealed there. But I think there's been a kind of an impasse in a lot of political discourse because everybody is assuming the worst of everybody. And even if sometimes that is true, it, it really hurts the quality of the debates that are happening in the public sphere.
1: Absolutely. I mean, on the right, people feel like anytime there's any discussion about gun control measures, it's really the left's attempt to completely uh, disarm the population. Yeah. So they say, oh, this is just the first step. And then it's just going to continue. And they're not going to stop at bump stocks. And then they're not going to stop at uh, high capacity magazines. They're going to keep going. Then they're going to go after your semi-automatic rifle. And then they're going to go after, you know, it, it just goes on and on and on. So there is that shutting down of the debate but i'm thinking that as we open up the conversation and say this is a multi-pronged problem suddenly when you're in that conversation with somebody from the opposite side of the aisle there is something to agree on there if you just say it's not one thing it's many things suddenly i mean they can't just reject all of those many things right Exactly. they're going to say no actually it is the family the house it's the home it's mental health and then you can even start to move that into a direction and you say okay if you think it's the family and that there's an issue in the home, what can we do to help support families to, to give them better opportunities to stay home with their children, to be more involved? Like, what can we do? And suddenly you're opening up the conversation. And I think then people find themselves agreeing on many, many points, actually, and not just a few.
0: Yeah, I just read an article yesterday, in fact, about how raising the minimum wage lowers divorce rates. So, you know, if there really is this concern about two-parent households being the answer to a lot of these social problems, okay, I'm completely open to that but lecturing people doesn't necessarily have an, out, an effect on outcomes the way that simply suppi- uh, supplying more material support to families who you know are often fighting about mo- money and getting divorced because of tensions that come from working so many hours and these kinds of things, that will have a real outcome. So let's go ahead and do that instead of just making it a kind of a culture war
1: issue. Do you know what I mean? Right, yeah, absolutely. We need to have yeah. more discussion. I think that's ultimately the point yeah. is we need to have more open dialogue with one another to the table together, really hash it out and, and try not to assume the worst from the other side. Yeah. Just say, let's come together. We're all Americans and We all want the best for our country, for our kids, for our families, for individuals. That's what we want.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you for, uh, for, for mooting that with me, Kim. Uh, we'll have more rising <laughs> for you right after this.
1: Well, it looks like the Uvalde Police Department and the Uvalde Independent School District police are no longer cooperating with the Texas Department of Public Safety's investigation into the Robb Elementary School shooting response, this new last night from ABC News. Uh, Sources say that the decision to stop cooperating with the state probe came soon after Texas DPS Colonel Stephen McCraw admitted that the delayed police entry into the classroom was the wrong decision last Friday
5: why was this decision made not to go in and rescue these children
6: again you know the on-scene commander considered a barricaded subject and that there was time and there were no more children at risk obviously ob- obviously you know based upon the information we have there were children in that classroom that were at risk and it was in fact still an active shooter situation and not a barricaded subject hmm.
0: Texas state officials say Uvalde School District Police Chief Peter Arundando hasn't gotten back to investigators in days. NBC reports that Arundando is believed to be the on-site incident commander who ordered officers to remain outside during the shooting. Joining us now to weigh in on these new developments is our rising panel. Max Alvarez is the host of Working People's Podcast, editor-in-chief of The Real News and author of The Work of Living. Welcome, Max. Thank you. And Denise Long is a business consultant and contributor at Newsweek. Welcome back to Rising. Good morning. Okay, so what do you think, Denise, triggered this response? I saw a frequent guest of the show, Alaymi Oluren, say that police know better than to cooperate with the police. What do you make of this move?
7: Well, clearly they probably overshared. (laughs) Uh, in their response from a liability perspective. Uh, And I anticipate that is what we're going to see uh, as a result of what uh, two people said, right? So one, I believe it was a sheriff, and I can't recall his name, mentioned the fact that perhaps law enforcement officials went in to get their own children. Uh, And another uh, spoke uh, similarly about uh, the call to, to not go in I think it's probably an issue of liability and for them to figure out kind of where they go from here and what they do next. It's a mess from an organizational perspective, from a communications perspective, from a public relations perspective, and from the reality that they stood outside while children were being murdered.
1: Oh gosh. I mean, this whole story just makes me so sick. I just cannot get over that. These grown men with guns were standing outside this door and allowing children to either bleed out or even, even if, even if they didn't think that there were any kids in danger at that point. There were children who were shot, and wouldn't they need immediate medical attention to potentially save their lives, and they just didn't do anything even about that, let alone then children that continued to get shot while they stood outside that door? Just makes me totally sick. But, Max, I mean, what do you you think the the public wants? I mean, obviously, these police are now in hiding, right? They've been hiding away. They don't want to cooperate anymore. I get it. They realize that they are going to be potentially held Liable for this. I mean, do you think that there should be some consequences for these cops?
6: Hell yeah, there should be consequences for these cops, these freaking cowards who not only did not do their job, but also, like, we've seen videos of them using, you know, all of their training and military grade gear. To restrain grieving parents who wanted to save their children, including parents who were there whose children actually died in that classroom. There absolutely needs to be accountability. There needs to be consequences for this catastrophic failure from the people who were supposed to protect us. And there were multiple agencies on the scene, right? So we had like a number of law enforcement agencies there. And, you know, it took... The gunman was alone like a, like a wolf in a henhouse. He was there for 40 minutes and they didn't do shit. Like that is, uh, like you said, it's, it's so viscerally repulsive that, that I hardly even know what to say. But I guess like to kind of piggyback on Denise's point, I think the liability question is a really important one for us to focus on because what we're essentially saying and what we are seeing right now is that cops are doing what cops always do. They are protecting themselves. They are not doing what needs to be done to serve the public interest so that we can know exactly what happened, what the failures were, how we can correct those failures in the future. Instead, they're not complying. They're running and hiding while people are grieving over their murdered children and colleagues. Like, that is horrendous. And unfortunately, it is part and parcel of what police do around the country all the time. Like, I think that people are starting to have that unbreakable hold that law enforcement you know, has on our, our public mind. That's finally starting to break and we're starting to realize that in fact, cops lie all the time. Remember George Floyd? The original police department report there said that George Floyd resisted the cop. The original report did not mention that Derek Chauvin kneeled on Floyd's neck for seven minutes and killed him. The Buffalo police initial police report when they knocked over a peaceful 75 year old man during the, Buff- the George Floyd protests They said he tripped and fell of his own accords. And in Baltimore, at the Real News, we cover the police all the time. Go watch the police accountability report. They always lie or they always hide like details because they're trying to protect themselves. The media tries to kind of catch up. And by the time we figure out the truth, the outrage has more or less died. So we need to be vigilant here. We need to hold people accountable and we need to do whatever we can to make sure this never happens again.
0: Denise, what do you make of that? Do you think this is really going to be a breakthrough moment? This is obviously a moment that validates a lot of what the left has been saying for a long time. But we also thought that perhaps George Floyd, to Max's point, was going to be an eye opener and have a longer tail than it ultimately did in terms of changing attitudes toward police. Do you think this is going to make a real dent with respect to particularly the more conservative attitude toward uh, police and policing?
7: So I think we need to be clear about what that attitude is, right? So in many ways, uh, there is a visceral reaction to people doing the all right, these uh, summary statements and characterizations of law enforcement, uh, and when it, it, which is not true, right? So that's why people often say not all cops, right? Uh, and so there's some ways we use this all-encompassing language that alienates and does paint with a broad brush. Now, having said that, we did also see research that shows there are a significant number of law enforcement officials who participate in racist online chat rooms, posting things that they should shouldn't be posting about the people that they're supposed to serve. <clears throat> so we can hope that we're clear about what we're asking and what are we asking? What are we asking? What we're asking for is authenticity and truth in police reports that are created and for accountability for law enforcement officers who manufacture evidence, who, falsify police reports and things like that. And we need to talk about what that accountability can be. Law enforcement officers are credentialed. Can we censor their credentials in the same ways that we do for other officers of the court, particularly attorneys in terms of their credentials to actually actually practice? So we can hope that we can be clear about what it is we're looking for and that people are clear about the potential consequences. The other piece I'd like to say, or if I can, is we have to think also about the opposite of what happened. What would the consequences public opinion be had the law enforcement officers on the ground just allow parents to run into the school, right? Some of whom <clears throat> may have been and probably were armed since they were up there because they knew there was a shooter. What would the consequences have been under that case? And, and what are the alternatives to a response uh, That would have allowed for the saving of life and certainly the opposite of what we did see, which is where armed folks, uh, law enforcement, trained officials were standing outside the school uh, uh, with parents versus
1: going in to take care of the subject. So there there are other ways that liability could be a problem. It should have never even gotten to that point. It should have never gotten to the point where the parents would have to even think about rushing into that school to save their own right. children. They only felt like they had to do that because all these people were standing around doing nothing to save their child. And I think every parent at that point should reserve the right. And I think it's criminal that these cops that they restrained them. Mm. I, you should reserve the right as a parent to have to be able to risk your own life to save your child. That I, just the the fact. I I just don't even. I can't even think of the horror of some of those parents finding out that their child was the one that was still alive, that their child was in there and got killed while the cops stood out there and they were trying to rush in there to to, to save their own child. I don't know how that parent goes on uh, living, thinking, you know, just the, the just, I, it would just terrorize them, I think, for the rest of their lives. And I hope these cops are terrorized for the rest of theirs, quite frankly, thinking about this horrific uh, event. I, I just, it's, it's awful. It's really Heartbreaking. awful.
0: Yeah, I think it is really the contrast between what action they did take and the action they didn't take that 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 raises people's uh, hackles there. But to your earlier point about not all cops being bad, I think that it's similarly the issue here. There is a presumption of all cops being good that I think people are wondering if that's going to be broken by this incident where you have kind of these blue line, you know, blue lives matter and and the flag and a kind of um, blanket valorization that I don't think the left has a particular interest in dehumanizing any individual, you know, but the, the fact is that there's a systemic problem that it gets covered up by the narrative that all cops are in fact good it'll be curious to see if that changes is all go- at all going forward after this event well only four days after claiming the gunman had breached Robb Elementary School through a door quote propped open by a teacher Texas officials now say actually the educator had closed the door an attorney for the teacher told the San Antonio Express News earlier this week that after witnessing the gunman crash his car and head in the direction of the school, his client ran inside, called 911, and kicked the object propping the door open away, causing the door to slam shut. So again, we have more misrepresentations that are coming out of the police department. And what do you, what do you make of that?
7: How did he get access to the school if the doors closed was it an automatic locking door as most doors in schools are or was it glass and he used the rock to break it open are we clear on that I'm not sure if we have additional details
0: I thought it was that it was something propping it open then he kicks it he kicks it closed and then it's shut and locked
7: yeah. Right. So he, yeah, how did he get access? <laughs> this is my question. And and what what are the, what are what are the mechanisms on that door
1: and surrounding that that would prevent uh, unauthorized entry? Is sort of where I'm at right now. Well, All maybe right. if the police cooperated with the investigation, we would find out, right? But since they're no longer answering <laughs> questions, how do we ever find mm-hmm. out?
7: Well, and there's something about them going to try to find a key to get into the building and waiting for a key to arrive or something, which I find also just
0: to the classroom strange. door i mean this is this is one of the points of contention mm. and people have brought up on the internet that when you have these no knock warrants, there seems to be no problem knocking down doors to people's homes. There were pictures circulating on the internet about uh the the, the fact that there was so much police funding in the city. Uh, and there was a swat team but there's a gap between the hyper militarization of the gear and of the force Mm -hmm. and the apparent inability to to get in a door and when you look at the bigger picture it seems like they did not want to go in when you hear the reporting from you know the police chief they're saying they they thought it was a risk to be officers to go into an active shooting situation as as (laughs) though that's not their entire job You know, and then this post hoc justification that, well, they thought it was no longer an active shooter situation. It was a barricade situation. And therefore, we don't need to get inside to, to your point, Kim, actually help the kids that might still have a chance of surviving being shot.
1: Yeah, we do want to switch gears a little bit towards policy now. Um, Governor Asa Hutchinson of Arkansas told CNN hosts yesterday that in order to prevent school shootings, TSA style security at every school, including armed guards, should be on the table.
5: Uh, if you simply did something on f- school safety, that makes a huge difference. Think about after 9-11, and we had uh, you know a s- safety issue with our airlines. We invested in it, we put air marshals there, we put armed guards there, we uh, armed the cockpits as well, mm-hmm. and it made a difference for safety and people had confidence in it. Uh, we didn't restrict anything, well we did, but we put our magnetometers in place. So we relied upon that, and we can do the same thing with our schools it's not easy but that's the really the most important focus that we can have
0: mm. meanwhile the house judiciary committee is eyeing a thursday vote on a wide range of gun wide range gun control package known as the protect our kids act cbs reports that the legislation would among other provisions raise the minimum wage uh, minimum age rather for purchasing semi-automatic center fire rifles from 18 to 21 ban the importation, sale, manufacturing, transfer, or possession of certain high-capacity magazines, ban the sale of bump stocks, and create a national bump stock registry. Max, is this the right path forward?
6: Hey, I... I don't know. I mean, like, honestly, um, I want people to know that there are more than one left perspectives on this. And I would actually point people to Roxanne Dunbar Ortiz's great book, Loaded, A History uh, of the Second Amendment. Um, Roxanne's about as left as it gets, but she even writes that, like, it's not really an issue that is going to be solved by kind of gun regulation. That's not to say that I don't think some regulation is good, but, like, we are essentially in an arms race in this country. And, you know, we, we've seen the statistics that, you know, out of the world's civilian population, of which the United States makes up about 5%, we own half of the guns owned by, you know, civilians. Um, that's like around 400 million, right? And in fact, gun sales like exploded during the pandemic pandemic, the fastest growing population that is buying guns and black women, right? So it's an arms race, right? You know, because we have essentially like created a situation where I don't know if we'll ever be able to put the genie back in the bottle from, you know, the, the kind of second amendment on forward. So I don't know how we're going to kind of really solve this. What I do know, and what I really want to stress for people is that Sandy Hook Elementary, where Adam Lanza horrifically killed 20 kids between the ages of six and seven and six adults. That was 10 years ago in December. We all saw and watched in horror and we all said, never again. Since then, um, never again apparently means nothing, right? Because we have the Las Vegas shooting, 60 people died. The Pulse nightclub, 50 people were killed. Sutherland Springs Church in Texas, the El Paso shooting, the Buffalo Tops that we were just talking about two weeks ago, the Charleston Church shooting, the King Supers in Boulder, Parkland and a bunch of others like it keeps happening. So never again is clearly means nothing. But I want to stress the fact that after um, uh, um, Sandy Hook, the right essentially got what it wanted. Right. In terms of the solutions to that horrific massacre, which was no gun control, which was more guns, which was active shooter trainings and bulletproof backpacks for children armed teachers there are over 25 states where that's possible cops on campus who don't do jack crap to stop it they didn't stop it in parkland they didn't stop the shooting in uvalde so we've essentially gotten what you know politicians on the right have been pushing for after sandy hook and the shootings haven't stopped and we're talking about just flooding more guns in i like i don't know like how to end this kind of madness at this point i like everyone else i'm just kind of sitting watching the horrific murders and wondering what to do. Well,
0: we'll be talking a little bit more about the potential options moving forward in my radar coming up, uh, but we will have more rising for you after this. Thank you both for joining us. Thank you. The country is still reeling from the horrific shooting at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, where 18-year-old Salvador Ramos entered the school and killed 19 children and two adults. Clinical psychologist Peter Langman has researched and studied what motivates school shooters. In his book, Warning Signs, Identifying School Shooters Before They Strike, he not only looks at why school shooters act, but how they can be prevented. Peter is joining us now. Welcome to the show. Thank you. So Peter, help us understand what are the warning signs and if these warning signs exist, how, why aren't they more frequently caught and these shooters intercepted?
8: So there's all kinds of warning signs that students are planning an attack and often they are surprisingly explicit.
2: Mm.
8: Sometimes students will simply tell their friends, I'm coming to school with a gun, I'm gonna do a shooting. And when it's that explicit, kids tend not to take it seriously. So one of the barriers is getting students to take reports of threats seriously. Sometimes besides simply announcing their intentions, the perpetrator will warn friends to stay away from school on a certain day because they don't want their friends to get hurt. In other cases, they may try to recruit a peer to join them in the attack. In most cases, a peer says no, but they often don't report that invitation. So again, there's a lot of missed opportunities sometimes uh, students may be less explicit and just tell their friends they're going to do something that's going to get them either killed or in jail or they may say there's going to be a bad day or i'm going to do something evil on friday these are all warning signs that need to be taken seriously and reported
1: yeah and then it seems like the obvious next step would to limit their access to any sort of weapons that would then allow them to do something like this but can you go into the psychology of these school shooters so we see that there's these warning signs maybe schools need to start having some sort of like shooter ed i guess where it's you know here's the warning signs here's what to spot this is what you should do if you see something say something i'm sure they're already doing something like that but what about the what what leads a kid to become a school shooter to even get to that point in the first place
8: you know there's a lot of people who will focus on a single cause as the explanation and they may point to bullying or they may point to video games you know violent films and so on and what we need to recognize is this is a very complex phenomenon there's no one simple cause we can point to there's a whole lot of different factors from a psychological standpoint i've identified three different types of school shooters but before going into those three types i also need to just emphasize that most people who have those traits or symptoms never kill anybody. So these are not complete explanations, but they help us understand the kind of things that are going on inside the perpetrators. So the first type is what I call the psychopathic school shooter. And this is someone who's just incredibly narcissistic. They don't have empathy for other people. They're just essentially cold blooded callous and often sadistic. And they get a kind of thrill out of having the power to hurt and kill people now in contrast to them there's the psychotic school shooters and these are people who are struggling with significant mental health issues for example they may be hearing voices telling them to kill themselves and other people they may have paranoid delusions that people are going to hurt or kill them so they have to act first So this is where the issue of uh, mental illness comes into play. But again, most people with these symptoms are not dangerous. So this is part of the explanation, but not the whole explanation. And finally, in contrast to the psychopathic and psychotic shooters, who typically come from essentially stable, intact families, the third category is the traumatized school shooters. And these are children who, who grow up in severely and chronically violent dysfunctional families. So the parents have drug or alcohol addictions. The parents have criminal behavior. There's physical abuse. There may be sexual abuse either in the home or in the community or in a foster home that these kids end up in. So what we have is three very different pathways to the same act. They all commit school shootings, but how they got to that point and why they're doing it can vary dramatically.
0: Peter, do you have a sense of how you would characterize the Buffalo shooter and the Uvalde shooter?
8: You know, when we look at recent incidents, it's really too early to say too much about them psychologically. Often it takes months and sometimes years for really detailed inside information to become available. So at this point, you know, I don't wanna say too much about the recent perpetrators. I I suspect a lot more information will come out that will shed some light on their motivations.
1: So, Peter, does this, these psychology types that you just mentioned, do these apply to, you know, and even the warning signs that you brought up earlier with, you know, saying to people, I'm going to do something or these various different behaviors. Does this apply not only to school shooters, but does this also apply to the other mass shootings that we see where people are in their 20s, 30s? even into their 60s, like in the Las Vegas shooting, for example?
8: You know, I've looked at perpetrators of other types of mass attacks, including ideological killers, whether that's uh, white supremacists or uh, domestic jihadists. And I tend to see the same dynamics. I do think that typology is relevant for other types of shooters. I've published some articles on other types of perpetrators, looking at them through that same lens. And the dynamics, the the life histories, the personality traits tend to be very similar to what we see among the school shooters Mm
2: -hmm.
8: with the warning signs. My impression is that the juvenile shooters, the middle school and high school kids who commit these attacks tend to be a lot more open about what they're going to do. The adult shooters may be more careful about what they disclose, but even there, there's often warning signs that people could report if they were trained to do so and knew where to turn with that information.
0: Hmm. As people debate whether or not mental health should be the focus here, I think part of the issue is that it's not clear what kind of mental health interventions could actually prevent something like this from happening, there seems to be a sense that there's a bigger cultural issue where people are feeling isolated, maybe in some cases they're bullied, maybe in some cases they have parents that aren't as present in the home due to a whole host of complex socioeconomic factors and on and on and on. Do you have a sense of, if, 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 what you want to, if someone wanted to prioritize mental illness over certain kind of gun control measures, what if any kinds of interventions could actually meaningfully decrease the number of mass shootings in this country?
8: I think first we have to distinguish or discuss the issue of mental illness and what people mean by that. You know, most people with mental illness are not dangerous. However, some perpetrators may have some kind of mental health issues. And in a broader sense, to me, anyone who's committing mass murder has some kind of psychological issues. Even if we just call that extreme anger or rage, a desire for revenge, a desire, for recognition, these are psychological issues that could be addressed. Now, in terms of looking at the perpetrators through the lens of the typology, you know, for children living in traumatic households, that's an area where you know, child protective services could get involved and either stabilize the home, remove the child if necessary to keep the child safe, provide treatment for you know, post-traumatic stress symptoms, and so on. For someone who may have psychotic symptoms, there's individual treatment and medication that can address those issues. So really what that intervention would look like would vary from person to person. And another factor to keep in mind is many of these perpetrators are also depressed and suicidal. So if we did a better job of recognizing depression and and students who are struggling with suicidal thoughts and provided intervention for them, we would not only save their lives, but might also be saving the lives of other people because they may also be homicidal at the same time.
0: Hmm. So does that look like, you know, more support in the school context with more, you know, support for school psychologists and perhaps hiring more and having more regular meetings with kids. I mean, from a policy perspective, I I, I know you're not a a legislator, but have you considered from a policy perspective what that would look like? Because we do seem to be having these battles where, you know, someone on the left might want to push, well, this is why we want to have universal health care and have free access to mental health care for all Americans. Somebody else might want to push, well, this is why schools need more funding so that they can hire staff that can attend to kids in these ways. Some other people who might be more conservative will say, well, this is why we need to have more support for families and perhaps, you know, maybe a child tax credit or something else that will give families resources to stay home with their kid or be more present and things like that. I mean, but I think kind of lost in all of it is A lot of people are struggling to your point. A lot of people have mental health issues and they don't become killers. Is an intervention like that really going to be dispositive in changing outcomes here as opposed to kind of comprehensive um, common sense gun regulation?
8: I certainly think anything that can increase people's access and willingness to use mental health services is a step in the right direction. So besides policy, there's the whole issue of destigmatizing mental health issues and mental health treatment. I would like to see that going to your psychologist is as routine as going to your dentist or your pediatrician. I would love to see people have an annual mental health checkup the same way we have an annual physical checkup. And I think the earlier you catch things, the more effective you can be in treating them. So again, whether that's a policy or a public education effort, I think we need to destigmatize uh, mental health treatment um, recognize that you know we all may have issues that we struggle with from now uh, now and then and that we could benefit from having a professional to talk to to address those issues.
0: Well, I appreciate you spending your time with us today. Uh, it's been edifying. Thank you. And we will have more rising for you right after this. President Biden has agreed to provide Ukraine with advanced rockets that can strike at long-range Russian targets as part of a $700 million weapons package expected to be announced later today. Senior administration officials told Reuters that the rocket systems can accurately hit targets 50 miles away. The officials also stated that Ukraine gave assurances that they would not use the missiles to strike inside Russian territories.
1: In a New York Times op-ed Biden published yesterday, Biden justified the new weapons package saying that while Russia's invasion would end through diplomacy, the U.S. must provide weapons and ammo to give Ukraine leverage at the negotiating table. Meanwhile, our next guest, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, writes that if Ukrainians want to drive Russia from its soil, Zelensky will have to create an almost entirely new offensive force. Senior fellow and military expert at Defense Priorities, Lieutenant Colonel Daniel Davis, joins us to expand on these ideas and weigh in on Biden's new weapons package. Welcome back. So uh, explain, what do you mean by this new offensive force?
9: Yeah, right now you have, uh, the entirety of the Ukraine armed forces deployed in three fronts. There's one in the Donbas, there's one in the Kharkiv, and then there's one in the south uh, near the Kherson region. So 100% of their troops are deployed in a in a dr- a drastic and desperate fight to keep Russia from advancing further into the country. In order to form an offensive force, you're going to need somewhere around 100,000 Uh, Ukrainian troops armed with the best equipment that that there is really in in the world and certainly from NATO countries. And you can't just use that, you can't just throw that on top of these guys who are trying desperately to defend. You've got to pull about 100,000 people who are right now not even in the military off to some far corner of the country where it's relatively safe and then train them up at at every level with this new equipment, which right now hasn't even been talked about, much less provided by the West and only then can you realistically hope to drive russia out. and so far none of that's even been talked about, but until it has, any talk about driving russia out is really just unsubstantiated.
0: so america is providing ukraine with long range missiles. they are giving assurances that although they can hit russian they can hit russia that they are not going to be used on russian territories. Am I wrong to think that this is analogous to what happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis, where America reject, uh, objected quite heartily to the idea of long-range missiles being so close to our shores? And why should Russia feel any differently about this?
9: Well, there, there certainly is going to be viewed as analogous from the Russian point of view, I can assure you that, although there is a difference, to be fair, that these are not nuclear-tipped uh, mm-hmm. uh, missiles. But I'll tell you, what's important is what's going to come out of the White House later today, because more important than what they have announced is what they haven't announced and that is how many of these weapon systems are we talking about how many rockets are we talking about because so far they keep using the term a small number and even though these are definitely advanced weapon systems if you don't have a lot of them and a lot of rockets uh, they're just not going to make any difference on the strategic battlefield they might make a difference in one spot on on a certain battle but only a little bit not not enough to tip the balance in any way even more important, who's going to operate these things. Now, I, my very first job in the army back in 1985 was as an MLRS crewman, which is the same platform that's being talked about here with these HIMARS. And that training takes about five weeks after you've started your your basic combat training. And you know so the idea that these are going to go in fast is going to be uh, it's just not going to be realistic because unless they're talking about sending trained american troops to operate these things and i pray to god they're not then you're going to take you know over a month to have to train ukraine people on how to do this and i assure you it's not easy training so we need to be have a sober idea that these things aren't coming in anytime soon
1: Hmm. so uh, with what what has changed I mean we've been hearing for since the beginning of this war that Russia's not doing well that you know any minute they're going to collapse They're running out of they're running out of supplies and and they're basically just being clobbered by the ukrainians and they're going to go home now it seems like there's been a drastic shift in the in the rhetoric about this and it now sounds like well Ukraine is the desperate one and Russia's actually making advances what has changed has Russia amped up, some, have they gotten better? Have they amped up, have they, I mean, what is different now?
9: Yeah, well, I'll tell you the main thing is different is that the, the Western media, especially the the major media like Washington Post and New York Times is now starting to cover what's actually happening instead of what they wish were happening. And, and lots of people were making these sweeping judgments on what happened because of the initial phase where Russia made, just, as I've said on your network many times, just catastrophic mistakes at this, both this strategic and at the tactical levels with how they operated this. And I won't go through all that again, but they definitely made huge mistakes, but they recognized it pretty quickly within just a matter of weeks. And then they completely changed it. And then they started focusing their combat power on one key part of the battle of the war, then the Donbass. If they take that, then the whole of the war could change dramatic points. And Russia recognizes this. They've been making this progress substantially but up to this point, the Western media keeps talking about like they're all a bunch of failures. But when you look at what's actually been happening for weeks now, not just recently, Russia is making methodical and critical progress. And if they continue on much longer, they're going to potentially unseat the entire Donbass fight and possibly take the whole thing. And then we're talking like thirty to 40,000 Ukrainian soldiers that could be either captured, destroyed, or cut off. And uh, no one's talking much about that, but that's potentially key to the entire progress of the war from here forward
0: well you made the point that not only is this a, a limited strategic value in part because it will take uh, five weeks or so for them to be these rockets to be properly staffed there's obviously uh the, the optical battle that's going on here where it seems that this is an intentional provo- provocation kremlin spokesperson dmitry peskov says the u.s was quote directly and intentionally adding fuel to the fire with its weapons delivery to ukraine that be it, the perception being that from Russia, the fact that this is not going to meaningfully help Ukrainians at least in the short term. What is the calculus you think coming from the Biden administration in sending these rockets at this time?
9: Well, the 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 most scary interpretation is that they're not given a lot of strategic thought to this. they're mm. They're here and Zelensky continue to ask for these heavy weapons. and then finally they said, okay, look, we'll give you some, but it's not enough to make a difference, but it is enough to make them think that they can keep fighting. And, and look, here's the, the where the metal meets metal reality. Forget about what Russia says or what's important to them. Look at what's important to the U.S. national interest and really even the Ukrainian side. If you believe you can keep fighting and winning, but the realities on the ground say that you can't, all you're going to do is increase your casualties, uh, lose even more terrain, and possibly get a lot more people killed and cities lost than if you make a deal the best you can right now, as opposed to later when you'll have a much less... Uh, positive outcome and I fear that that's the the real result of this is not that it's going to help Ukraine win but it's just going to increase the cost of their loss
1: well that's what I wanted to ask you about your idea of a new offensive are you advocating for that and saying let's do this so that we can drive Russia out of the country are you saying no it's guys make a deal you know should have made a deal a long time ago and you're you keep losing territory if you continue on like this you will lose more territory make a deal Which is it? Yeah, as I was
9: as I was very clear in in both the introduction as well as all three parts, I am absolutely and continuing to say, deal, let's get this thing done uh, and and do what's best for your country. And to point out that if, however, you decide you want to do the offensive, that you want to continue to try to drive them out despite anything else, this is what it's going to take. And this is what it's going to cost And when I can show you that it's going to be a minimum of a year and probably more like a year and a half before you could have the capacity to do this then that leads to the conclusion that the most rational thing to do is to make a deal. Mm -hmm.
0: Well, thank you, Lieutenant Colonel. We always appreciate your insights.
9: Thank you for having me, I appreciate it.
0: We'll have more rising
1: after this. Well, surprise, surprise. Dr. Anthony Fauci's National Institute of Health was funding research to identify treatments for monkeypox before the virus started making headlines. This is according to investigative reporter Natalie Winters over at the National Pulse. The nearly $10 million grant funds support a clinical trial that worked to identify effective treatments. The trial began in September of 2020 and has so far not generated any public studies, papers, or patents. That's according to the report.
0: The Monkeypox grant summary states that the similarity between monkeypox and the smallpox virus coupled with concerns about smallpox as a potential bioterrorism agent, have placed monkeypox treatments at the forefront of public health. And then there's this. The grant was distributed to Lori Dodd, who also works at the NIAID, and was previously exposed for her involvement in the agency's reported data altering of remdesivir trials to make it seem more effective against COVID. Oh. Okay, Kim. This is your area of expertise. Help me un- <laughs> help me understand this connection here. Is the implication that because they were working on a vaccine to monkeypox, that they somehow anticipated this?
1: What What's the angle here? Well, I mean, look that that is obviously what a lot of people are going to be raising their eyebrows about and wondering. I mean, if they started this sort of research in September of 2020, right before COVID, and then suddenly. As the world is starting to just move on from COVID emotionally, I know COVID is still out there. A lot of people are still catching it. I recently had it. But nonetheless, people are emotionally saying, "Okay, you know, two weeks turn into two years. I'm not going longer than that. And it just, you know, happens that suddenly monkeypox now starts to make the rounds and it's making press and, you know, it's all over the news. Now, it's one thing to question is it out there and visible and uh, and they're kind of scaremongering us about monkeypox because they certainly are you know is that because because of this so it so it's the question of are they is the media doing that or is the government doing it right so is it anthony fauci doing it or is it the media that's just looking for sensational headlines or is it both in cahoots?
0: It does certainly seem like there's an appetite for monkeypox that might not exist outside of COVID. But of course, there have been a number of scares, you know, avian flu, you know, there are a bunch of these things that didn't really amount to as much as people thought they were going to amount to, um, that, you know, became news because newspapers and people like to consume these things. And there is a way that monkeypox The name of it and the similarity to smallpox does really tickle the imagination. But I think it's also true that, you know, these institutes of health work on uh, vaccines and treatments in advance of outbreaks happening. That's, you know... Kind of why we were able to ramp up the uh, vaccine for uh, covid as quickly as they did because they were already in development for other similar kinds of viruses and flus and these people are working on these kinds of things all the time so i'm not sure that we have the smoking gun yet to draw any conclusions about that but this this uh connection with the woman who also worked um at the agency involved with remdesivir Uh, You know, is that also just a feature of a small scientific community where people are working on a lot of different projects, especially
1: in in the realm of virology? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly possible, right? It could just be coincidental if you believe in coincidences like this, right? But I will say that there is something very suspect about the fact that they started working on identifying treatments for monkeypox in September of 2020. This has been a virus that's been around since 1970. So why suddenly, in September of 2020, are they saying, hey, we need to start looking for treatments for a disease that's been out there and circulating in certain parts of the world uh, without it being that dangerous, actually? I don't think monkeypox is a deadly disease. I think it's just ugly. It's like chickenpox, right? So I'm sure there are maybe some people with very vulnerable systems that maybe do succumb to the virus. But overall, I think it's just inconvenient and ugly. Um, But it is suspect. Why would they suddenly start working on it in September of 2020? And then suddenly, as soon as COVID is starting to tamp down, then they're saying, oh, my gosh, there's a monkey pox. Uh, and we've ordered how many millions of vaccines at, for this. And we need to get this out there, even though it's currently only spreading in one demographic at the moment, I believe. It's not you know, it, it's not easy to catch. You have to touch the sores to catch it. So you have to be in close contact. So, uh, you know. It, 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 it's suspect. I mean, let's face it. If, if this disease has been around for decades, why now? Well, it, it could be devil's advocate. It
0: could be that in 2020, there's a lot more funding going the way of investigating these kinds of contagious viruses because of the scourge of COVID-19. Uh, so it, it's very possible that, you know, these, these grant processes are difficult. People are all uh, constantly applying to get money to fund different kinds of research and it could be it could have been considered to be a low priority for the reasons you articulated it doesn't seem to be spreading as quickly it's not that prevalent in the world generally speaking but in a world where everyone's certainly concerned about viruses because of COVID 19 maybe the money simply started to flow
1: in the fall of 2020. I don't know. It's hard to believe. It seems like everything at that point in September of 2020 was flowing towards COVID. For them to suddenly say, oh, you know, maybe we should tackle monkeypox, a virus that's been around since 1970 is really odd. But what's more odd is not that they started to investigate that. That would have been fine. What's odd is that there's now suddenly an outbreak and that that outbreak is making headlines and it's spreading all around the world. And now everybody needs to be fear mongered about monkeypox. So it does feel look like Uh, You know, many of the conspiracy theorists have been right up to this point about a lot of different things. So it does feel very odd that suddenly there's this invested, you know, there was this investigation into treatments for a disease that has been around for decades, starting in September of 2020. And then just conveniently, when everybody's starting to say, you know, I'm not going to take any more boosters of this covid vaccine. It's I got covid anyway. What, so everybody's moving on with their life and then suddenly they're like, oh, but we got this new really ugly disease because COVID wasn't scary enough for you. Right. So now we got something that's really scary. It's going to give you boils on your skin. You don't want to walk right. around looking like that. So now suddenly the people that didn't want to get vaccinated against COVID are going to be like, sign me up. I don't want to have ugly sores all over me like chicken do you, pox. Do you think people would be responding to
0: COVID differently and having a kind of a different approach to COVID? Uh, vaccines and mandates and masking if COVID did give you these kind of physical effects as opposed to just the respiratory effects, some of which are longer term?
1: I mean, hard to say, you know, many of us had chicken pox. So, you know, we got through it and I've got, the, you know, a scar or two to prove it. Right? <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, if it's still not a deadly disease like monkey pox and chicken pox and, you know, smallpox is different. Obviously, that was very deadly. But chicken pox. And, you know, parents had parties and threw their kids together. As soon as they found out one had chicken pox, they'd be like, everybody get it right now. Let's do this. So I don't know. It, or people would say, I think a lot of people would have still said, I'll just put up with the sores. I, I'm an adult. I won't scratch them. To, so I won't get a scar. I'll just try to treat them. And it's better than trying out this experimental vaccine that, you know, we, we just don't have enough data on. I still think there would be a lot of hesitation, maybe a little less. Maybe some people would be like, I don't know, that's that's pretty ugly. Some of those pictures
0: look kinda gruesome. They look kinda worse I, than, than chicken
1: pox. So. Yeah, it's definitely I mean it's definitely disgusting. But you know, as a kid I had the mumps, the measles. Now, I don't know if I had yeah, I think I had I think I had all three. I think I had chickenpox, mumps, and measles. <laughs> I had I got the smorgasbord. Well but maybe, that maybe back- Yeah. Maybe Everybody I'm
0: overestimating uh, American vanity, but we'll, we'll see, hopefully we won't see, and we won't have a widespread of this particular virus, but it's an interesting story to follow for yeah. sure.
1: Uh, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Hillary Clinton's 2016 campaign lawyer Michael Sussman was acquitted Tuesday of lying to the FBI when he presented information about Donald Trump and Russia before that year's election. This was based on the charge that he lied when he allegedly denied he was acting on behalf of any client in alerting the FBI to claims that a secret server linked to Trump and a Moscow bank. And this is according to Politico. The verdict, which was in the first trial of special counsel John, John Durham's investigation, is a defeat for Durham and his prosecutors who have spent three years looking for wrongdoing in the Trump Russia probe. AP News says this outcome is likely to hasten questions about the purpose of the inquiry and its cost to taxpayers, particularly because three criminal cases Durham has brought so far have not established any form of conspiracy to frame Trump or hurt his candidacy for president. Hmm. So I know this has
0: been causing a lot of um, consternation on the Internet. Kim, for people who haven't been following this story super closely, you know, what is the posture here? Is the issue that, um, you know, Sussman did not lie or that the lie didn't have any long term effects? Why, Why was he acquitted here?
1: Yeah, so first I think we have to just kind of understand what this story is, because a lot of people, it's tough following it if you haven't been all of these years, right? But Michael Sussman was a lawyer for Hillary Clinton. And really the whole point of the Durham investigation, to to understand the entire investigation, because Sussman's just a part of it, is to figure out where the entire whole Trump being connected to, you know, him being a Putin puppet, a Moscow puppet, where that whole entire allegation came from. And was there some sinister wrongdoing That then led to this entire, you know, the country up in arms for years and investigations and lots of tax dollars going towards it, finding some connection that Trump was somehow for sure being controlled by, you know, that he was somehow beholden to Russia in some way. Right. So this was the first uh, trial in that investigation. And what so Sussman being one of Hillary Clinton's lawyers, the, the what they charged him with was lying to the FBI So they said that he lied to the FBI when he didn't disclose that he was working as a lawyer for Hillary Clinton. And that that when he gave information saying, hey, there's some servers and they're connected from Trump to this Alpha Bank in Moscow. Like this is the problem that he didn't say, oh, by the way, I'm working for the opposing political party, you know, candidate.
0: And in fact, in this this text that's been going around, he says, I'm not texting you on behalf of any client like he specifically says i'm kind of texting as a free agent
1: right but insinuating that he 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 is actually a lawyer for that client right so the issue is they they when they charged him with lying to the fbi they had to do two things in order to get him to to a guilty verdict and that would be prove he lied knowingly you know so he lied didn't just say something and you know and then they secondly had to prove, on top of that, that it actually mattered, that his lie made a difference in the outcome of whatever it was, like that it was the first in the dominoes. And they couldn't prove either of those things really in court. The 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 text message, I don't even know if that was presented or if it was. I know the jury wasn't allowed to rely on it because the text wasn't actually discovered until later on after the indictment was already made against Sussman. So... The they had to go based on just just testimony from the person he had the conversation with, and that was flimsy and kind of changing. So that part of it was a little bit flimsy. And then the second part about it, what really got them was the fact that the FBI, when they did this trial, it it turned out that the FBI knew Sussman was already working for Hillary Clinton. And with them knowing this, it didn't matter. it, It didn't change their behavior. They still wanted to pursue this investigation. They found that, The FBI knew that there that there it was flimsy evidence that it wasn't real, but they they decided to go forward with it anyway. So it really shows that the FBI has a there's a problem within the FBI. But because the FBI was going forward with this investigation anyway, no matter what they knew about Sussman, it showed that whether or not Sussman lied, it didn't matter. The dominoes had already fallen. Yeah, so they
0: they investigated that link that link. That Sussman pointed to found that there was nothing there, but then still continued with the broader investigation. Yeah, they of didn't care. Donald Trump and yeah. alleged leaks to Russia.
1: Mm. So if you're going to lie, and like Michael Sussman lied, suppose you know allegedly lied, I suppose, um, then y- there has to be a consequence to that lie. You you don't just get charged and get thrown in prison for telling a lie. The lie has to actually have done something bad. And they're basically saying in this trial. His lie didn't do anything bad. The bad thing was already happening, apparently, with the FBI. So it sounds like the FBI needs to be investigated. What's interesting is this case was, you know, they were saying, oh, he lied to the FBI. And then it turns out, well, the FBI was actually the reason why he got acquitted was because it turned out the FBI was already doing dirty things. Mm. And, you
0: know, for folks who are already inclined to be very frustrated with the Russian investigation, whether because you're a conservative who feels like Trump was and fairly maligned. Whether you're a, a Bernie Krat who also got caught up in all of the Russia phobia during 2016 and felt like uh, all of the Russia, Russia, Russia stuff was a pretext for Hillary not to deal with some of the legitimate concerns about her candidacy and her failure to take accountability, this this really does not much of anything um, in terms of your substantive thoughts
1: and feelings about whether right. you know the, the investigation was politically motivated. Well, and then the question I think to add on to this is like, look, we wasted a lot of money, taxpayer dollars on an investigation into Trump Russia connections. Are we wasting money again mm. going through with an investigation looking for the sinister plot that started that that investigation? Mm. So, you know, we're looking for okay, well, who who did this? You know, who wasted our dollars, who wasted our time? And we're wasting dollars and we're wasting time trying to find the who done it. Yeah. So, you know, are we going to even find those people if it is the FBI that did it? Are we going to I mean, I, you know, we have to then ask questions of how fruitful will this investigation and any sort of any sort of charges be in this in this situation? I don't know. Are we just wasting more money? But, you know, you have to go after wrongdoing. I mean, that's a lot of times people are found not guilty and they did it. You know, yeah, but you got to do it right. Yeah, well
0: maybe i mean i was gonna say maybe this will be the end of it but we all know that's not the case uh russia will continue to loom large for multiple reasons in our political uh rear view for a long long time um but we have another show for you tomorrow with new topics we will have tomorrow on rising rebecca azor and emily joshinsky here with us to weigh in on the news of the day and we'll discuss more about the new right movement coming out against proxy war and nato expansionism Win Ukraine with James Antle.
1: All right. Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you guys never miss an episode. And be sure to check out our podcast. We're available everywhere you want to listen to us on the go. Uh, So thank you so much for that. Thank you guys so much for being here. And we will see you guys tomorrow. Bye. Bye-bye.